Hello and welcome on in to Dogs in Autumn, the history of American football. Today we're going to quickly go over a largely forgotten power program from the early days of the game, Carlisle Indian Industrial School. I'm happy to be here and of course very happy to have you here as well. Football history at Carlisle sits at an intersection of several historic trends that though less well known today than they probably should be, were nonetheless critical to the time they occurred and not just for the history of the sport, but for the history of the country. Carlisle was a boarding school, meaning of course the children who attended also lived on the premises for most of the year. This superficially creates a similar picture to the earlier development of football we talked about in the first episode of the main show, The Football Stone Age, but that's where the similarity ends. Because, as the name implies, Carlisle was a boarding school exclusively for native children, designed to assimilate them to white American society in the decades immediately following the end of the Indian Wars and the closing of the Western Frontier. I'm not going to cover the history of Indian boarding schools other than to state the very obvious fact that they're a really dark chapter in American history and the consequences of them are still being felt to this day. Situated in the rural Cumberland Valley of eastern Pennsylvania, Carlisle was a relatively early adopter of the sport, with evidence of football on campus as far back as 1879, though the NCAA doesn't recognize their first full season until 1893. Right here is a second somewhat uncomfortable thing with Carlisle. Its records are kept by the NCAA as part of college football history, but Carlisle was not a college. Its purpose was again not so much education as assimilation. It just so happened that many of its students were college-aged, and therefore were naturally better off competing against college teams. And so there they are, in the NCAA record books. And sports was a foundational part of the Carlisle philosophy. Remember, this is still the age of muscular Christianity, the early progressive era, and Carlisle was subject to the same beliefs about fitness and manliness that drove the development of football everywhere else. It didn't take long for the Carlisle boys to establish themselves as a national power, or even among the earliest titans of the sport. They didn't do it like their peers, though. Being a co-ed residential school exclusively for natives, usually from far-flung parts of the continent, their pool of athletes was extremely different. Unlike Harvard, Yale, or Michigan, the students didn't usually choose Carlisle. It was either chosen for them, or it was the best available option. As a result, football players at Carlisle tended to be a little on the smaller side. They made up for this with a more fluid and agile style of play. In a fateful game against Cornell, Pop Warner, then coach of Cornell and an alumnus of Cornell, was impressed with the Carlisle method. Pop Warner had already had a successful run at Georgia in addition to his impressive first stint at Cornell, but in 1898, tensions in the locker room resulted in him leaving his alma mater. He was able to land what was at the time an absurd salary of $1,200 a season funded by Uncle Sam to take over coaching duties at Carlisle. The marriage of Pop Warner and Carlisle proved successful for both, as well as important to the development of the emerging sport. Like Amos Alonzo Stagg at Chicago, Pop Warner's legacy is that of one of the game's early master tacticians, and he's credited with inventing body blocking, the screen pass, the trap run, and other innovations still with us today. Most of these techniques were pioneered at Carlisle, but even with all that taken together, his greatest gift to sports history might have been introducing it to another man altogether, Jim Thorpe. Anytime you're talking about athletes this far back, it's hard to know how to classify them relative to modern ones. 
for Jim Thorpe, all we have are photographs and eyewitness accounts to testify to his abilities. And being as this was over 100 years ago, he obviously didn't have access to the kind of training, medicine, and nutrition available today. That said, Jim Thorpe was among America's first sports celebrities, and probably the first for football. Jim Thorpe's story is the kind of fertile narrative soil that American myth loves to take root in. He was born in Indian Territory, present-day Oklahoma, to a Sack and Fox father and a Potawatomi mother. He was helped through school as a small child by his twin brother, Charlie, but Charlie passed away at the age of nine with complications from pneumonia. His father then sent young Jim away for school thereafter as a means to keep Jim from running away. When his mother died in childbirth a few years later, though, Jim ran away anyway. Later, he and his father were reconciled, and Jim agreed to attend Carlisle, hundreds of miles from home, which began his career as an early sports icon. There he met Pop Warner, and between Thorpe's freakish multi-sport athletic prowess and Warner's football mind, they turned a scrappy Carlisle team into the powerhouse history remembers them to have been. He gained national notoriety in Carlisle's upset of Harvard, in which Jim was solely responsible for every Carlisle point en route to an 18-15 victory. That was 1911. 1912 went even better. Behind his power and speed as a ball carrier, along with the threat of his leg, dropkick field goals were still a thing at this point. Carlisle charged to an 11-1 record, and were awarded one of those early mythical national championships college football would later become so well known for. The modern NCAA credits Jim Thorpe with 27 touchdowns for the 1912 season, which is a huge number even by today's standards. He went on to win two Olympic gold medals in the pentathlon and decathlon too, both with mismatched shoes, because someone had stolen the ones he brought with him and he had to make do with what he could find. The Olympics later nullified both wins upon discovering that he'd played a little baseball for money earlier that year. It's widely believed today that Jim Thorpe's medals likely wouldn't have been taken from him had he been but born white to white parents instead of native ones. It was extremely common practice for college athletes to play professional sports on the side at the time, uh, but they usually used a pseudonym and Jim didn't. But it was something, like paying college athletes under the table maybe in the days before NIL, that the public was broadly aware of and didn't take much issue with. The powers that be, though, now that was a different matter. The Amateur Athletic Union, which was the organization that worked with the Olympic Committee in those days to certify American athletes were in fact amateurs and therefore eligible for Olympic competition, chose to retroactively strip Jim of his amateur status after some newspapers reported on his baseball activities, and the IOC soon followed their lead and stripped his medals. Eventually, the International Olympic Committee would restore his medals in the 80s at first as a co-champion, and then later they named him sole champion once again. This kind of thing followed the Carlisle team pretty much everywhere. Newspaper reports always promoted their games in dramatic terms that evoked bloody battles between natives and white settlers, rather than ball games with strict rules played between young men barely older than boys. It didn't stop Carlisle from achieving the absolute pinnacle of the sport, no more than it stopped Jim Thorpe from becoming a two-time All-American in addition to his two gold medals. He was also, by the way, the first ever president of the National Football League. But I do wonder if part of the reason maybe Carlisle isn't better remembered than it is today is because a full century removed from it, 
We're too far away for it to be our world anymore, but not so far that the cracks on the surface don't look like cracks in a mirror in which maybe we see a little too much of ourselves. Carlisle Indian Industrial School closed down in 1917. By that time, people had begun to question the role of sports at the school and furthermore, located where it was in rural Pennsylvania. It was soon made redundant by schools closer to where natives actually lived. The practice of residential schools and all that that implies carried on well past Carlisle, unfortunately, but the schools eventually stopped serving its purpose. Pop Warner moved on to memorable tenures at Pittsburgh and Stanford, among others, winning four or five national titles between the two, depending on who's counting. He's probably best known today for Pop Warner Youth Football, which is the preeminent youth football organization in the country. Jim Thorpe played professional sports essentially until he couldn't anymore. Pro sports could give you fame at the time, but it rarely gave you the kind of real wealth we associate with professional athletes today. So like most Americans, he struggled to find work through the Great Depression and wound up with poor health later in life, ultimately dying from a heart attack in 1953 at the age of 65. He was remembered later by a man he once ran through, back when Carlisle played a game against West Point in 1912. Dwight Eisenhower wasn't a general or a president then, he was a linebacker. But in 1961, the former general, former president, and former West Point linebacker recalled, Here and there, there are some people who are supremely endowed. My memory goes back to Jim Thorpe. He never practiced in his life, and he could do anything better than any other football player I ever saw. Carlisle is the winningest defunct football program in the history of the sport, at least at the college level. They closed up shop with a 167-88-13 to to record. The entire history of Carlisle football rose and fell before the existence of the Heisman Trophy. Otherwise, Jim Thorpe would have certainly won at least one. It's strange to look back on the days when the game belonged to the universities and see this one program standing out beside the rest. Not a university, but a school. Segregated, but allowed to play against white teams, which is not true of predominantly black colleges at the time. But nonetheless, this strange, uncomfortable, but crucial chapter in the history of American football came to a close before even the end of the First World War. That's our show. Next time, we'll take a tour through the history of one of the two preeminent conferences in college football, the Big Ten. After that, we're diving back into the main show and heading below the Mason-Dixon to watch football spread and catch fire all across the American South. Feel free to reach out. I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at DogsInAutumn, one word, or email me at DogsInAutumn at gmail.com. Also, if you're feeling generous, take a minute to rate and review. I'd sure appreciate it. Till next time. Thank you.